Chapter Seven of a Narrative of the Life of Mrs. Mary Jemison. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Narrative of the Life of Mrs. Mary Jemison by James E. Seaver. Chapter Seven. For four or five years, we sustained no loss in the war except in the few who had been killed in distant battles and our tribe, because of the remoteness of its situation from the enemy, felt secure from an attack. At length, in the fall of 1779, intelligence was received that a large and powerful army of the rebels, under the command of General Sullivan, was making rapid progress towards our settlement, burning and destroying the huts and cornfields, killing the cattle, hogs, and horses, and cutting down the fruit-trees belonging to the Indians throughout the country. Our Indians immediately became alarmed, and suffered everything but death from fear that they should be taken by surprise and totally destroyed at a single blow. But in order to prevent so great a catastrophe, they sent out a few spies who were to keep themselves at a short distance in front of the invading army, in order to watch its operations, and give information of its advances and success. Sullivan arrived at Canadigua Lake, and had finished his work of destruction there, and it was ascertained that he was about to march to our flats, when our Indians resolved to give him battle on the way, and prevent, if possible, the distresses to which they knew we would be subjected, if he should succeed in reaching our town. Accordingly, they sent all their women and children into the woods a little west of Little Beard's town, in order that we might make a good retreat if it should be necessary, and then, well armed, set out to face the conquering enemy. The place which they fixed upon for their battleground lay between Hanioi Creek and the head of the Canisius Lake. At length a scouting party from Sullivan's army arrived at the spot selected, when the Indians arose from their ambush with all the fierceness and terror that it was possible for them to exercise, and directly put the party upon a retreat. Two Oneida Indians were all the prisoners that were taken in that skirmish. One of them was a pilot of General Sullivan, and had been very active in the war rendering to the people of the states essential services. At the commencement of the revolution, he had a brother older than himself, who resolved to join the British service, and endeavored by all the art that he was capable of using to persuade his brother to accompany him. But his arguments proved abortive. This went to the British, and that joined the American army. At this critical juncture they met, one in the capacity of a conqueror, the other in that of a prisoner, and as an Indian seldom forgets a countenance that he has seen, they recognized each other at sight. Envy and revenge glared in the features of the conquering savage, as he advanced to his brother, the prisoner, in all the haughtiness of Indian pride, heightened by a sense of power, and addressed him in the following manner. Brother, you have merited death. The hatchet or the war-club shall finish your career." When I begged of you to follow me in the fortunes of war, you was death to my cries. You spurned my entreaties. Brother, you have merited death and shall have your deserts. When the rebels raised their hatchets to fight their good master, you sharpened your knife. You brightened your rifle and led on our foes to the fields of our fathers. You have merited death and shall die by our hands. When those rebels had drove us from the fields of our fathers to seek out new homes, it was you who could dare to step forth as their pilot, and conduct them even to the doors of our wigwams, to butcher our children and put us to death. No crime can be greater, 
but though you have merited death and shall die on this spot, my hands shall not be stained in the blood of a brother. Who will strike? Littlebeard, who was standing by, as soon as the speech was ended, struck the prisoner on the head with his tomahawk, and dispatched him at once. Littlebeard then informed the other Indian prisoner that as they were at war with the whites only, and not with the Indians, they would spare his life, and after a while give him his liberty in an honorable manner. The Oneida warrior, however, was jealous of Littlebeard's fidelity, and suspecting that he should soon fall by his hands, watched for a favorable opportunity to make his escape, which he soon effected. Two Indians were leading him, one on each side, when he made a violent effort, threw them upon the ground, and ran for his life towards where the main body of the American army was encamped. The Indians pursued him without success, but in their absence they fell in with a small detachment of Sullivan's men, with whom they had a short but severe skirmish, in which they killed a number of the enemy, took Captain or Lieutenant William Boyd and one private prisoners, and brought them to Little Beard's town, where they were soon after put to death in the most shocking and cruel manner. Littlebeard, in this, as in all other scenes of cruelty that happened at his town, was master of ceremonies and principal actor. Poor Boyd was stripped of his clothing, and then tied to a sapling, where the Indians menaced his life by throwing their tomahawks at the tree, directly over his head, brandishing their scalping-knives around him in the most frightful manner, and accompanying their ceremonies with terrific shouts of joy. Having punished him sufficiently in this way, they made a small opening in his abdomen, took out an intestine, which they tied to the sapling, and then unbound him from the tree, and drove him round it till he had drawn out the whole of his intestines. He was then beheaded. His head was stuck upon a pole, and his body left on the ground unburied. Thus ended the life of poor William Boyd, who it was said had every appearance of being an active and enterprising officer of the first talents. The other prisoner was, if I remember distinctly, only beheaded and left near Boyd. This tragedy being finished, our Indians again held a short council on the expediency of giving Sullivan battle, if he should continue to advance, and finally came to the conclusion that they were not strong enough to drive him, nor to prevent his taking possession of their fields, but that if it was possible they would escape with their own lives preserve their families, and leave their possessions to be overrun by the invading army. The women and children were then sent on still further towards Buffalo, to a large creek that was called by the Indians Catawba, accompanied by a part of the Indians, while the remainder secreted themselves in the woods back of Beardstown to watch the movements of the army. At that time I had three children who went with me on foot, one rode on horseback, and one whom I carried on my back. Our corn was good that year, a part of which we had gathered and secured for the winter. In one or two days after the skirmish at Canisius Lake, Sullivan and his army arrived at Genesee River, where they destroyed every article of the food kind that they could lay their hands on. A pan of our corn they burnt, and threw the remainder into the river. They burnt our houses, killed what few cattle and horses they could find, destroyed our fruit trees, and left nothing but the bare soil and timber but the Indians had eloped and were not to be found. Having crossed and recrossed the river and finished the work of destruction, the army marched off to the east. Our Indians saw them move off, but suspecting that it was Sullivan's intention to watch our return, and then to take us by surprise, 
resolved that the main body of our tribe should hunt where we then were, till Sullivan had gone so far that there would be no danger of his returning to molest us. This being agreed to, we hunted continually till the Indians concluded that there could be no risk in our once more taking possession of our lands. Accordingly, we all returned, but what were our feelings when we found that there was not a mouthful of any kind of sustenance left, not even enough to keep a child one day from perishing with hunger? The weather by this time had become cold and stormy, and as we were destitute of houses and food too, I immediately resolved to take my children and look out for myself without delay. With this intention, I took two of my little ones on my back, bade the other three follow, and the same night arrived at Gardo Flats, where I have ever since resided. At that time, two negroes who had run away from their masters some time before were the only inhabitants of those flats. They lived in a small cabin and had planted and raised a large field of corn, which they had not yet harvested. As they were in want of help to secure their crop, I hired to them to husk corn till the whole was harvested. I have laughed a thousand times to myself when I thought of the good old negro who hired me, who, fearing that I should get taken or injured by the Indians, stood by me constantly when I was husking, with a loaded gun in his hand, in order to keep off the enemy, and thereby lost as much labor of his own as he received from me, by paying good wages. I, however, was not displeased with his attention, for I knew that I should need all the corn that I could earn, even if I should husk the whole. I husked enough for them to gain for myself at every tenth string one hundred strings of ears, which were equal to twenty-five bushels of shelled corn. This seasonable supply made my family comfortable for samp and cakes through the succeeding winter, which was the most severe that I have witnessed since my remembrance. The snow fell about five feet deep, and remained so for a long time, and the weather was extremely cold, so much so indeed, that almost all the game upon which the Indians depended for subsistence perished, and reduced them almost to a state of starvation through that and three or four succeeding years. When the snow melted in the spring, deer were found dead upon the ground in vast numbers, and other animals of every description perished from the cold also and were found dead in multitudes. Many of our people barely escaped with their lives, and some actually died of hunger and freezing. But to return from this digression, having been completely routed at Little Beard's town, deprived of a house, and without the means of building one in season, after I had finished my husking, and having found from the short acquaintance which I had made with the negroes, that they were kind and friendly, I concluded, at their request, to take up my residence with them for a while in their cabin, till I should be able to provide a hut for myself. I lived more comfortable than I expected to through the winter, and the next season made a shelter for myself. The Negroes continued on my flats two or three years after this, and then left them for a place that they expected would suit them much better. But as that land became my own in a few years, by virtue of a deed from the chiefs of the Six Nations, I have lived there from that to the present time. My flats were cleared before I saw them, and it was the opinion of the oldest Indians that were at Genishaw, at the time that I first went there, that all the flats on the Genesee River were improved before any of the Indian tribes ever saw them. I well remember that soon after I went to Little Beard's town, the banks of Fall Brook were washed off, which left a large number of human bones uncovered. The Indians then said that those were not the bones of Indians, because they had never heard of any of their dead being buried there, 
but that they were the bones of a race of men who a great many moons before cleared that land and lived on the flats. The next summer after Sullivan's campaign, our Indians, highly incensed at the whites for the treatment they had received, and the sufferings which they had consequently endured, determined to obtain some redress by destroying their frontier settlements. Corn Planter, otherwise called John O'Bale, led the Indians, and an officer by the name of Johnston commanded the British in the expedition. The force was large, and so strongly bent upon revenge and vengeance, that seemingly nothing could avert its march, nor prevent its depredations. After leaving Genesee, they marched directly to some of the headwaters of the Susquehanna River and Shahari Creek, went down that creek to the Mohawk River, thence up that river to Fort Stanwix, and from thence came home. In their route they burnt a number of places, destroyed all the cattle and other property that fell in their way, killed a number of white people, and brought home a few prisoners. In that expedition, when they came to Fort Plain on the Mohawk River, Corn Planter and a party of his Indians took old John O'Bell, a white man, and made him a prisoner. Old John O'Bell, in his younger days, had frequently passed through the Indian settlements that lay between the Hudson and Fort Niagara, and in some of his excursions had become enamored with a squaw, by whom he had a son that was called Corn Planter. Corn Planter was a chief of considerable eminence, and having been informed of his parentage and of the place of his father's residence, took the old man at this time, in order that he might make an introduction leisurely and become acquainted with a man to whom, though a stranger, he was satisfied that he owed his existence. After he had taken the old man, his father, he led him as a prisoner ten or twelve miles up the river, and then stepped before him, faced about, and addressed him in the following terms. My name is John O'Bale, commonly called Corn Planter. I am your son. You are my father. You are now my prisoner and subject to the customs of Indian warfare, but you shall not be harmed. You need not fear. I am a warrior. Many are the scalps which I have taken. Many prisoners I have tortured to death. I am your son. I am a warrior. I am anxious to see you and to greet you in friendship. I went to your cabin and took you by force, but your life shall be spared. Indians love their friends and their kindred, and treat them with kindness. If now you choose to follow the fortune of your yellow son, and to live with our people, I will cherish your old age with plenty of venison, and you shall live easy. But if it is your choice to return to your fields and live with your white children, I will send a party of my trusty young men to conduct you back in safety." I respect you, my father. You have been friendly to Indians, and they are your friends. Old John chose to return. Corn Planter, as good as his word, ordered an escort to attend him home, which they did with the greatest care. Amongst the prisoners that were brought to Genesee was William Newkirk, a man by the name of Price, and two Negroes. Price lived a while with Littlebeard, and afterwards with Jack Berry, an Indian. When he left Jack Berry, he went to Niagara, where he now resides. Newkirk was brought to Beardstown, and lived with Littlebeard and at Fort Niagara about one year, and then enlisted under Butler, and went with him on an expedition to the Monongahela. End of chapter 7